0: Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the amazing Dr. Julie Smith. For those who haven't heard of Dr Julie, she is a clinical psychologist with over a decade of professional experience and she's also hugely popular on social media, including myself. I follow Dr Julie, I think she's absolutely fantastic, but she's also got over 3 million people who follow her brilliant advice. She's here today to tell us about her new book, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? where she shares her therapist's secrets and it which is described as a must-have hand kit for optimizing your mental health. I really enjoyed this conversation. We covered so much ground. We talked about the pillars of health um, for mental and physical well-being. We talked about the difference between self-esteem and good self-regard. We talked about depression and low mood, how to tell the difference. We talked about a values-driven life and how that can improve self-compassion. Oh my goodness, we covered a lot. And I am thrilled to share this conversation. I know that you're going to get a lot out of it and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Welcome, Dr. Julie. Thanks so much for having me. It's so so great to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a long time, so it's lovely to bring that to fruition. I guess we should just start off by saying, how are you really? How are things for you today?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a sort of whirlwind couple of years, you know, through the, the sort of growth of the social media stuff for me through the pandemic and everything and, and writing the book at the same time as homeschooling and things like that. So it, it's been a strange few years for us all, hasn't it? So it's lovely to have a conversation
0: with people and, you know, start seeing people face to face again. It's lovely. So, With the pandemic, you're right, I I feel similar. I had a lot going on. I was going to work, doing my normal clinics, then having my social media life and homeschooling and all of that kind of stuff. So I I think for me, I was probably busier than ever during the lockdowns. And you said that it's been a sort of a crazy couple of years. Did your social media really kick off then during the lockdowns? Yeah,
1: so I only really started just before... We even found out about any virus. So it was November 2019, that would have been. So it was just a couple of months before everything started to happen. And and it was already starting to grow very quickly. But then, you know, once, once lockdown hit, and I think... It's, it's interesting, isn't it? That So my accounts are purely about providing some mental health education and insights from therapy to help people manage their mental health day to day. So not only were all these people on social media more than ever, but they were also clicking follow on an account that was all about mental health and managing. So I think it said a lot about what we were all dealing
0: with at the time. Yeah, it really does. And how amazing that it's been so popular so quickly. Do you feel that the pandemic has accelerated that growth in in terms of people's need for health and mental wellness advice.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think what social media has managed to do is help us to start this big global conversation. And it really is global. You know, I get messages from people across the world and, uh, you know, saying, well, in my culture, it's not okay to talk about this sort of thing. So thank you so much for allowing me an avenue to, you know, learn about these things or discuss it online. And, and so, you know, there, there is this shift. Can only happen when lots of people join the conversation and then start to change
0: their behavior day to day. So, yeah, it's really exciting. It is. It's, and it's lovely to see those messages getting out to people who wouldn't otherwise know about them. But I suppose let's, let's take a little backtrack and, and get people to understand a little bit more about Dr. Julie. So, perhaps just start at the beginning. What led you to your passion for psychology?
1: So, I mean, <laughs> this is the point where you'd love to have some sort of, uh, you know, epiphany, epiphany. story. <laughs> but I, all honestly, and and the, I get lots of sort of aspiring psychologists and things who who contact me and say, you know, what was that story and what did you do and how did you, you know, discover all this? And and really, the advice I always give people is about following your interests, like, because that's really all I did. You know, I I did a, a psychology A level because it sounded interesting, and I wasn't sure what else to do and found it really fascinating. So went on to do it at university because, again, if I'm going to be studying something for three years, why not something I'm interested in? And that worked out really well because then I went into, uh, and still didn't really have any idea about what the job of a psychologist was really about, um, but found a job that sounded interesting. It was as a research assistant in an addictions unit. And from there, Worked alongside a psychologist and an assistant psychologist who was on the track to becoming a psychologist and just learned from all of those people and saw what the job was really about. Um, And so, you know, went on to then train and, and do my doctorate after that. So all the way along, it's just been you know, I, I I love learning, but especially I love learning about human beings. And so I've just sort of followed that track all the way along. And I think that just really increases your chances of falling into a job that you enjoy. Yeah. So yeah. And then the social media part really came out of I was providing therapy, so lots of young people who were coming along and something that people don't Necessarily expect about therapy is that a significant portion of it can be quite educational. So you teach people a little bit about how their mind works, how you can influence your feelings and your mood and your energy levels and understand your relationships a bit more. And a lot of people found that once they had that information, they were sort of raring to go. You know, they said, well, you know, why has nobody told me that before? This is really useful stuff and it's not rocket science. I can do it every day and things get better. So I became quite sort of passionate about it within the comforts of my own home, just sort of harping on to my husband saying, this should be available to people." And so he sort of said, "Well, go on then, make it available." And so we started making a few videos for YouTube and things like that, and at the same time discovered TikTok and so we thought, well, but let's just put a few sort of short things on there and see if anybody you know wants to hear it and apparently they did. so two years later, and
0: Three million followers later, that's the story of how we got
1: to where we are. It's an
0: amazing story, and I'm—I feel similarly that I always had this real interest in what made people tick. You know, why do people make the decisions that they make, and what you know, what's what's the reason behind why why they think the things they do? And for me, medicine was was a good choice because I wanted to be able to help people, but also. I studied religion um, because I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, the human need for connection in terms of faith. And so, you know, I studied religious studies and then ended up studying psychology as part of some of my medical training and my psychiatry rotations. But I found it really interesting because in a way it also helped me to understand myself a little bit better. And, you know, the things that I subconsciously believed about life and the world and people... Is there anything that you feel has been really applicable to your own life or certain experiences that you've had where your psychology background has actually been really useful for you? All the way along because, and I think that's something that I try to
1: express quite a bit on social media is that Although I'm a psychologist, that does not mean I'm coming from a place of, you know, I've got it all sorted and and no problem ever phases me. And and it's absolutely not that way at all. And certainly the book is really that way that it's, this isn't, you know, I think I say in the introduction that you're not going to read this book and then have a problem-free life. It's your toolkit so that whenever you come across problems and you're struggling to face them, you've got some, some tools to help you then tackle it and get through. So... For me, yes, you know, having the psychology background and having read the books means that you're armed with a few tools, and sometimes you surprise yourself and you use them and they're really effective and things go well. And other times, something throws you and you you don't use the right tools and and then you have to go back and reevaluate and think about what would I have done differently and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely about trying to use tools to help you get through, but not adding perfectionism on top of that. So not saying, okay, now I've got these tools, I need to have a perfect life because that just doesn't exist. And that's another expectation that's going to lead you to feel like a failure. So it's really about acknowledging our sort of common humanity that we're all fallible. And it's really not about never failing. It's about, you know, soothing yourself and helping yourself to get back up and live a life that feels
0: meaningful and purposeful to you. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. I like the way you said it's important not to be a perfectionist about it. You could imagine someone picking up the book and saying, I must be perfect at using every single tool at every single possibility and yeah. then end up finding themselves feeling additional stress there. Um, Absolutely. I mean I suppose that kind of draws upon the concept of self-compassion in a way. Yeah. Understanding that yes, we will all have challenges, we will all make mistakes, we will all feel as though we can't face certain things or move forwards. I mean, how do we embrace self-compassion in a healthy way and be able to use these tools you know, to the best of our abilities? How do you think that we could do that most effectively? Well, I think there are lots of misconceptions
1: around self-compassion, actually. Certainly when I have tried to sort of teach about it in the therapy room, there is this idea that if I am kinder to myself or more respectful to myself and I let go of that hypercritical inner voice that I will become lazy or I will lose my drive for success or you know I just won't have the drive to get out of the bed in the morning and things like that. And it's really not true at all. You still have drive, but you have that drive and energy from a place of contentment rather than fear and threat and wanting to be enough from that place of scarcity. Uh, so, you know, self-compassion, I think, I meet so many people who are brilliant at expressing compassion to other people. So they're all about, you know, compassion is really about that feeling you get when you see someone who is suffering and you have that feeling that suffering matters and you want to help them relieve that suffering. Whether you can or not, it's that feeling you get that you want to help that person. You have their best interests at heart. And so many people are brilliant at that with all the people around them. But when it comes to, being that way towards themselves, they've just never done it before. They're very, very hard on themselves and focus on looking after everybody else. And the result of that is often that you get really depleted and come and see someone like me and say, well, you know, what's going on? Because Is not sustainable. So often when I'm talking to people about self-compassion and trying to help them conjure up that feeling for themselves, it's really difficult. So what we do is we look at, well, when do we access that feeling? Usually when we're thinking about somebody else. So it's really helpful to think of someone in your life that you perhaps love unconditionally. It might be your child or it might be a, a mother or a family member. And and you kind of conjure up that feeling that you have for them when when they're suffering or in distress. Or if they were in the same position as you, you know, often get people to think about, okay, if your daughter or someone was in the same situation as you and suffering, what would you want for them? What would you want them to hear? What What would you want them to be able to say to themselves? Or what would you want them to feel strong enough to do for themselves? And it's much then easier to answer the questions about, about what they would want for that person because they are well-practiced at looking at that person and having their best interests at heart. And then we turn it around and say, well, you know, what, what would that be like if you were to do that for yourself? And often it's quite a quite a big emotional moment when we start to be kind to ourselves. Cause often, you know, we're in this sort of high threat situation and, you know, when you're dealing with lots of stress and then someone cuddles you and you sort of breathe out and, and cry, or, you know, you release that emotion and it's because you feel safe. So when someone expresses kindness towards us, it switches off the threat system and we feel safe again. Uh, but that happens whether that kindness comes from somebody else or inside our own heads. So when we start to be kinder to ourselves, we feel safer. You know, it's safer to make a mistake because we know we're not going to completely shame ourselves. And yeah, I'll talk for hours about compassion because I'm really, really passionate about it. And it's a really difficult concept sometimes to learn. It takes lots of practice. You know, I'm still practicing myself. So again, no perfectionism on the kindness front.
0: (laughs) No. Well, I think you're right. It's, it can be a journey and it's not quite the same thing as having empathy or sympathy. My understanding is that you don't necessarily have to feel the emotions of another, um, but it's more a case of wanting the very best for them, as you say, than imagining if it was a relative or a friend, what you'd say to them yeah. and say that to yourself. That's very true. Yeah, there's, there's a lovely clip online, actually, I think it's on YouTube, which is where I think it was Brene
1: Brown looked at the difference between sympathy and empathy And she said, sympathy is sort of, you know, if someone is in a big hole, sympathy would be standing over the edge, looking down saying, oh, that looks bad. Empathy would be getting a ladder, going down into the hole with that person saying, this is bad. Let's, let's work on this together. Let's see how we can get out of this. And so it's that, you know, real connection and that, that common humanity that we can all be in a difficult place. So I'm willing to sit here with you and help you work through it.
0: Yeah. That's a really lovely way of looking at it. Thank you for sharing that and i loved that you shared you know the simple way that you can sort of shift your mindset to help you to understand what you actually deserve you know the things that you give to others are the things that you also deserve for yourself which is a lovely tool i love the name of the book why has nobody told me this before and you alluded to um you know that very same fact when you were thinking about sharing this information with people online and and with your patients and mentioning it to your husband would there be any other important tools that you might be able to share with us in this chat that we can learn from? Obviously, we're going to buy the book as well.
1: But- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's lots in there. And partly because it's split into, you know, I, I want to, not everybody goes to therapy, partly because not everybody wants or needs it. And some people don't have access to it across the world. But But they're not therapy skills, they're life skills. And there are problems that we all face. There isn't this sort of well and then unwell, you know, everybody is on a spectrum of, of wellness and and life throws really tough times at us. So I deliberately sort of split the the book into those everyday normal human problems that we all face. So there's a section on low mood, a section on stress, a section on motivation, grief, relationships and meaning, and all of those are different things. So that when you're struggling, it's really difficult to read a book cover to cover, isn't it? And and then, you know, try and search for the thing that you're looking for. So I wanted to split it into, you know, different normal problems that we all face so that when you find yourself in a situation, you can sort of dip into that section and learn a little bit about what might be talked about in the therapy room yeah. around that subject and then take from it what you need at the time. So there are lots of different tools for different problems And you can sort of work on bits at a time and hone those skills. But I guess one common thread through all of those problems is about building self awareness. So any problem that we face is much, much harder to solve or resolve if we are not really aware of why it's happening or what causes us to do that thing we know we shouldn't do. And it really comes down to, and there's lots of Uh, sort of journal prompts and things like that all the way through the book. Um, because if you're working from a self help approach and you don't have that sort of, um, someone to go to and, and talk about it and break it all down, doing that on paper can be so valuable. You know, sitting down, writing down how you feel or what's going through your mind or. What tends to happen every time you do that thing you don't want to be doing? And you then get this sort of bird's eye view of everything. And in therapy, we'd call it a formulation where we sort of map out, OK, what you did then, what came before that, or what sort of made you feel, um, you know, unable to cope with that and what came before. So you kind of just literally map out what's going on and you build this understanding. First of all, in hindsight, so you look at, oh, what happened yesterday, once everything's calmed down and you're able to deal with it. But then when you get practiced at looking at understanding things in hindsight, you build up this ability to notice it in the moment as well. So if you've been working on breaking a certain habit or something like that, but you've been you know, writing about it for several weeks, then you might find yourself in the moment thinking, I know this part. I know this is when I'm vulnerable to doing that thing I don't want to do anymore. Now I can choose something different. And, And so you open up this sort of window of opportunity to choose something different and then behave in ways that aren't necessarily emotionally reactive, but based on what you want for your life instead.
0: I like that so much. It's almost like when a child plays. I feel like children play, and that's part of their development, is understanding social cues and sort of social etiquette. And In a way, you're doing that for yourself as an adult by rehearsing. It's like a mental rehearsal of the kinds of situations that you know you've faced before, the kinds of situations that you've really struggled in, enabling you to use the tools in the moment in the future for the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And and we we continue to learn that way throughout our lives, don't we? And but we
1: perhaps expect so much of ourselves. We expect ourselves to to know everything and have it all sorted. There's this idea, isn't there, that when you get to adulthood, you'll have it all sorted and you'll just know everything. <laughs> and 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 it's just not, you know, we need to kind of break that that fallacy so that we can all be okay with continued learning and sitting down and going, "Oh, There's something about this situation that I'm really unhappy with. How can I understand it a bit more so that I feel more able to tackle it?
0: Yeah, you're right. And it is important to think about learning throughout life because, you know, it's a bit like exercise or anything you wouldn't just go for a run once and say oh well that's me sorted I'm fit now <laughs> or if you have a gym membership go the one time and think well I'll, you know I've obviously got enough biceps now <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with mental health isn't it it's, it's something that is always worth checking in on and and just seeing you know how do I feel what are the tools that I can use now is there a way I could have dealt with that better and I think I mean would you say that's connected to a growth mindset is that something that that you talk about
1: yeah so i mean it can be and and actually
0: the exercise thing is something i talk about in the book around sort of motivation
1: as well that you know this idea that we're we're told that some people are motivated and some people aren't. And actually, motivation isn't like that. It's it's a feeling, it's a sensation that comes and goes. So we can't rely on it. So if you want something for your life, so if you want to be able to exercise on a regular basis because you know it's healthy for you and it makes you feel good, then, um, you know, relying on motivation, waiting until you feel like it is generally going to be unhelpful um, because you get the odd day, don't you? Where you think, oh yes, I'm going to go and be fit and, you know, go out for a run or something. But they don't happen every day. So (laughs) if you want to be exercising every day, there needs to be other things in place that don't rely on that lovely feeling of motivation. Often motivation is that feeling you get when you come back from exercise and you think, I should do this every day. I feel great. Uh, But you don't get it before often you never really feel like doing exercise or exerting yourself, or some people do, but so you can't sort of depend on that. Whereas the, the, the growth mindset stuff is really about holding that belief that you can improve with effort and support and time. And so even if you're taking on a new challenge like uh, exercising more or making it a more regular habit, you have to start with that mindset of, I know I can improve things with time and effort. Therefore, then I, I go for it and and I'll put that time and effort in. Whereas that sort of fixed mindset is more when you believe that all of your, your talents and abilities are innate. So you are born with your abilities. You're either a, a runner or you're not, or you're either a maths person or you're not. There's some brilliant research on this by a lady called Carol Dweck, who has done lots of research with children in schools and a performance in big companies as well. And it's really fascinating how this growth mindset, that ability to shift yourself to believe that your talents can be developed through hard work and to just sort of shift yourself into that mode so that you can then achieve more because you are less likely to give up. Um, if things go wrong. You're more resilient when you make mistakes or you fail at something. You see failure as part of that process. Whereas actually being in a fixed mindset can be almost paralyzing. For example, if you want to take up running and, and run every day, but you don't see yourself as a runner, it's unlikely to happen. So yeah, I mean, there's the sort of mindset stuff and linking that with the motivation. So not waiting until you feel like it, that can really help to sort of develop new habits that are healthier or more meaningful to you.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I can see in my own life, actually, I never thought of myself as as any kind of an athlete. And to be honest, I still don't. Something I do need to work on. But I have run two marathons now. Wow! And, I've, <laughs> and you still don't see yourself as an athlete? <laughs> no, isn't that interesting? And I think it's because, you know, I obviously... It was a big journey for me. I never exercised in school. I never exercised even in my 20s. It took me a long way to actually say, okay, I'm going to start moving my body. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do a regime. I'm going to keep the momentum up. And you're right. It was it was the part of me that decided you can do this, even if it's hard, even if you fail, you're going to just keep going and you will get there. And um, yeah, that did enable me to then eventually run a marathon or two. And um, I still can't quite believe that I did it. <laughs> but- it's incredible, you know, achievement, isn't it? And and it's interesting
1: you say that because that sense of identity, you know, really helps with the days you're not motivated. Yeah. You know, this is just something I do now. I just run. And, and that's when you can continue a habit even after, because that tendency is to set a huge goal, isn't it? If you want to change your life and then once that goal is complete, you know, lots of people sort of hang up their running trainers and things because the goal's done. But actually if we shift our identity as I'm someone who gets up in the morning and moves my body, whether it's running or swimming or dancing around the kitchen, whatever it is, if you see that as just who you are because you are someone who values your health, then you can continue running throughout your life whether there's a marathon ahead or not you know and then running can be something you enjoy or you do because you you see yourself as someone who values your health so having that sort of bringing something in as a part of your identity is really really helpful
0: yeah it's very true I actually talk about that in my book as well because I talk about the shift towards a healthier Lifestyle and healthier food choices, and how if it's rooted often in identity, it rather helps. (laughs) Absolutely, it does, doesn't (laughs) it? Keeps you going. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. And you mentioned about having that growth mindset and, and seeing failure as an opportunity. I can really resonate with that, actually. And I'm wondering, is that something that you've ever experienced personally the idea of times in your life where you failed at something and actually? it turned out for the best. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I talk about failure quite a bit in the book in terms of you know, myself. And, and certainly in the section where I talk about anxiety, I share quite a few stories about when I have felt anxious and got it wrong. So I've done something that's not really helped me and until I sort of knew a bit more about the process and what I should be doing to help that sort of phobia and things like that. It's really about sort of finding I'm trying to think of an example to share with you, but something I share in the book is an example of, so I, I always had a fear of heights growing up and I went on a trip to Italy and I went up the Leaning Tower of Pisa um, only because my Then, boyfriend had bought a ticket, so this is happening. You know, there was no sense of, oh, I can't back out now. Uh, So, you know, got to the top and did this sort of embarrassing, impulsive get on the floor situation. I couldn't go to the edge, I just got down onto the ground and looked down, trying to avoid the fact that I was up high. And then from there, I talk about actually now I look back, and to me, it's a sort of funny story now because I can see what I was doing wrong and I was avoiding trying to acknowledge the thing that I feared. So I was trying to convince myself that I wasn't up high so that I could calm my body. But actually, if I was going to address my fear of heights, for example, now, I would i would still go up the tower, but I would take my time uh, looking out at the distance acknowledging that I was up high breathing slowly to allow my anxiety to not escalate and then allow my body to gradually exhaust itself and, and then my anxiety would come back down and then I if I was really trying to tackle the fear I would do that on repeat for several days until I felt fine about going up the tower so you know it's really I try to help people learn through my mistakes as well, because we all make plenty of them, don't we? And and I think, gosh, when you when you make a mistake and you spend the rest of your time kicking yourself for not being perfect or not being enough, you're not then in a position to learn from it. You're just, you know, you're covered in shame or guilt or embarrassment, and and that is so psychologically threatening that you're just not in a position to be able to take on new information. So that's where the compassion needs to come first, where we are respectful and kind to ourselves and acknowledge that humans are fallible. There is nobody on this earth that's not ever made a mistake or failed in some way. It's part of the course. So if we can then be kind to ourselves, we can lift back up and look at it, be honest with ourselves, but in a respectful way
0: so that we can use it to move on in the future. That's really interesting. It's making me think about the different spectrum of ways in which we can self-sabotage or have a negative mindset towards ourselves. And I mean, what would you say to somebody that you were speaking to and explaining about the importance of self-compassion? And if you were afraid of something or you had a genuine fear of something, how you'd get past it, what would you say to them if they said, "Well, well, my fear is too strong or my Depression is too severe, or if somebody has post traumatic stress, for example, would you use the same kinds of tools, or do you think that there may be more to it? Yeah.
1: So, for people with serious mental health problems um, that are severe and enduring, yes, those tools are still applicable and and they are things that we use in therapy, but they're not the whole story. So, that, you know, the, the book isn't therapy itself. And So for people who have highly complex situations or for people when the self-help approach just isn't enough, you know, sometimes you just need extra support and you need another pair of eyes and ears to really work through a problem with you and spot things that you perhaps haven't spotted yet or, you know, be that accountability for you to keep coming back to this and working on it. So, you know, that's where, you know, the tools come from therapy, but I think it's really important that anyone who has any sense of, I'm struggling and I think I could benefit from going to see someone professional, then I would recommend it every time if that's accessible to that person.
0: Thank you. I think that's a really important point, especially in the UK, because things are less accessible here. I, I have to say, you know, even in my NHS work, yes, people can be referred for therapeutic support, but there's often a waiting list and you don't necessarily get to choose the practitioner that you speak with. So I think access can be an issue, but equally if it's possible, that shouldn't stop you from seeking help. Yeah, know that I, yeah, I was just going to say
1: that's really where you know the book came from was this idea that there was so much need and lots of people coming through and and to realise that lots of them didn't really need long term therapy, they needed some education and then they were ready to go. You know, and and it really was life changing for a lot of people. So you know, that's where we have to really open the doors to the world of sort of therapy and psychology. There's a lot of fear around educating in mental health, as if that's somehow different to educating about physical health, you know, that we're not at the mercy of how we feel. There are lots of things we can do to promote good mental health and well-being in the same way that we can promote physical health. It doesn't stop things from happening to us. And there is a time to seek professional help, as with your physical health. But there are things that can help. So, you know, I don't think the two are sort of mutually exclusive or, you know, or we need to sort of go one way or the other. It's all part of that big toolbox, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. And you're right. There are some things that you might go to a pharmacy for, some things you might have to go to the doctor for. And the same with your a situation. You, know, you may, may find it useful to be educated by the book, but actually if you need more help, then the therapists are there to do that with you, which I think is a great thing. I mean, how 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 would you advise somebody tell the difference between... Feeling a bit low and maybe needing a few tools, and you know, a more enduring sort of depression that that needs additional help. Yeah. So,
1: in the book, actually, I've written about low mood because everybody has low days. Everybody has those days when you're not really feeling up to doing all the things that you need to do, and you're not really feeling as energetic as you might normally, and those sorts of things. But depression is a clinical term that has a certain set of criteria. So low mood is is part of that criteria, but that low mood would be severe and more persistent over a long period of time. And it would include other things. So that might be sleep disturbance, appetite changes, relationship issues. There are sort of lots of other criteria. So I would say for anyone who has any question marks around whether they think they might have depression, then, go to a professional and help them work out with you what's going on. Um there is no harm in doing that because if the answer is, you know, th- this is not depression, but maybe you could do with x, y, and Z, you know that so there is there is never any harm if you have access to a professional to go and talk to them and get their view on what's going on, and whether you need some extra support or not. Yeah, so I mean, But there are lots of things we can do to to help with those low days that everybody has to help get through them, but also to shift mood and turn it around when when we can. But also to normalize that, that that's part of being human. You know, we weren't built to be super happy all the time. We're built to survive. So, you know, sometimes our mood is low. For example, you know, if we're grieving, low mood, significant low mood is a normal part of grief. So we don't always have to sort of pathologize that in some way or make it something that shouldn't be happening for you then it becomes about what tools can I use then to help me get through that low mood as a normal part of being human who's grieving.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. Thank you for making it. And I think I've seen online, there's there's a lot of commentary and discussion about the, the pros and cons of so-called positive psychology. And I guess your mention of grief kind of makes me think about that because... I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on it. You know, on a sort of an Instagram post, you might have a positivity quote or don't worry, be happy or whatever it might be. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the sort of genre, if you will, of positive psychology? I mean, what are the good and the bad sides to it? So positive psychology is a bit more,
1: so if clinical psychology is about taking people in terms of their wellness from minus five to zero, it's kind of a neutral place. Positive psychology was really looking at, well, why do we settle for that? Why don't we try to get people to use their skills and and be the best that they can. So the idea of taking people from zero to plus five, you know, to allow them to thrive and flourish. And so it really started this area of research that was about strengths and talents and skills and all of these different types of things. And for me, that's quite separate to, you know, the sort of Instagram posts of, don't worry, be happy. And I always sort of cringe at some of those posts because it's a sort of, well, if it was that easy, my job wouldn't exist. And so it's really easy to say those things, but not easy to do. And, you know, life throws all sorts of stuff at us, does not it? And it's really, really hard to just not worry about stuff when we have responsibilities and, you know, people depending on us and that sort of thing. So, and, uh, you know, something I, I write about in the book as well is about affirmations, this idea that around sort of self-esteem, you know, that if you just tell yourself you are lovable and brilliant, that you will start to believe it. And research is really interesting on that because it shows that, for people who already have a significant degree of self-esteem so they already feel quite good about themselves if they maybe use an affirmation like that it might give them a, a little boost for a short term so they might feel good about themselves for for a minute and feel the benefits of that but for someone who doesn't believe in themselves in that way and does not have core beliefs around feeling lovable for example if they're told to start repeating that or thinking of reasons that it's true then it can actually Uh, make things worse. So it can actually cause you to start thinking in your mind, oh, well, am I? Well, actually, I've got a whole bunch of reasons here why I'm not, because actually you you believe the opposite. So um, it can start this sort of internal argument about what really is true. And then you start to think about all the reasons that you're not that thing. Um, So I'm I'm really kind of a stickler for the affirmation stuff that it's okay to, to have a sort of affirmational mantra Um, that's very concrete and instructional, that helps you to get through a difficult sort of high pressure moment, for example, that's not focused on what not to do, but is focused on if I, you know, if I do this, then this, um, that can help you to get through high stress situations. But in general, just sort of saying things to yourself that you don't necessarily believe is not
0: generally the answer. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating research, isn't it? It is. So, okay, so if somebody has low self-esteem and they want to work on it uh, and they need to give themselves a pep talk of some sort, what, what do you think they should do?
1: Well, often, you know, self-esteem is a sort of fairly controversial issue in research at the moment in that there were so many research papers on it uh, years ago. And this idea that everybody needed to sort of believe that they were good and all that sort of thing. And that all of those things were based on conventional ideas about success. But the trouble with that is that you, or sort of strengths, the trouble with that is that, There's always, you know, in this global world where you can compare yourself to pretty much anyone else, you know, of the other however many billion people are on the internet, there's always somebody else who's doing better at you on something. So then your self-esteem takes a hit, you know? So if how your value for yourself is based on ideas of success or what you're doing, then that's going to really disrupt your sense of self and how you feel. Whereas if, if we shift towards something that's more values based. So when you think about you know sometimes you get things wrong and sometimes you're you're not being the person you want to be and so sometimes having a sort of low self-esteem can be a valuable thing if it, if you're being honest with yourself and you're saying actually I'm not I'm not being the person I want to be in my relationship at the moment. I need to sit and rethink this. You know, if you had relentless high self-esteem, you probably wouldn't do that. So if you are compassionate, then you're able to say to yourself, honestly, I'm getting this wrong. Something's not right here. I need to make a change. And then you're able to look at it without all of that shame coming all over you. So you don't have to have high self-esteem all the time. If you're able to be compassionate with
0: yourself and kind with yourself, then you can sort of learn from, from difficult experiences then. That's a real penny drop moment actually when it comes, for me anyway, when it comes to thinking about self-regard. Because you're right, if somebody was relentlessly uh, full of self-esteem then (laughs) they might be quite arrogant actually. Absolutely. And it's
1: correlated with all of those things, you know. It's correlated with bullying and with arrogance and all those sorts of things. So it's nice to feel nice about yourself, but relentless high self-esteem and, and believing in yourself all the time is slightly different, isn't it? I think yeah, it's much more useful to, yeah. to be honest and with yourself. And you're right.
0: It, it's, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily correlate with self-reflection, which I think we all need to do on some level, you know, every day. Absolutely. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> okay. So, We've talked about the difference between low mood and depression and what might be needed for those. We've talked about self-compassion as the key to unpicking a little bit about things around self-esteem and um, the struggles that we're facing. Would you share what you feel like some of your important sort of wellness pillars are, if you like, the things that you think for yourself are the most useful things that you do each day? So for me, anyone
1: that I... Would be working with over the years, whatever service it was, however unwell or well a person was, I find it always useful to go back to basics to begin with. So there are a certain set of foundations that if you start messing around with any of those things, that person will become vulnerable to becoming unwell. And for me, those things are nutritional intake, sleep, human connection, and movement and values. So you know, some of them are kind of self-explanatory, aren't they? You only have to have one or two bad night's sleep to feel emotionally vulnerable. You extend that over a long period of time and you've got some real trouble on your hands. And the same with sort of eating poorly or not having good access to good quality food and things like that. Human connection, we've all learned that one through the pandemic about how it can really disrupt your mental health if you don't have social connections with other people or feel a part of a community in which you feel like you belong or you feel valued. The movement exercise is just, the research is just so powerful when you start reading into it about all the different ways that moving helps you both physically and mentally. It's just, I would always start with that. From people who have been really, really unwell we would actually physically in you know, working in hospitals and things i would actually walk around the garden with people just to move you know just to start moving it's just so so important and i've really learned that for myself actually that for me you know sleep and movement are really sort of big clear foundations for me if i if i start to mess around with those i really don't feel good and then so the last one was values which is about again behaving in ways that are important to you that matter to you so what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want to contribute to the world or to my family, and what do I want to uh, represent? And and those sorts of questions that help us to just just give us a sort of guide because sometimes people come to therapy or something because they feel a bit lost. You know, everything's kind of okay, but. We lose that sense of meaning. And it's just because life steers us in different directions and steers us away sometimes from what originally mattered to us. So, really getting clear on so I talk in the book about doing values check ins on a regular basis, just where you ask yourself, you know, in this area of my life, what is most important to me? Am I behaving in line with that at the moment? If I am, great. If I'm not, how could I shift back towards that thing that means so much to me? So it's really kind of simple stuff, but just helps to create those foundations for sort of good mental health that can help you to get through when life throws something at you. If you've got those foundations really secure, then you're able to, to really sort of come up against the, all those sort of awful things that life can throw at you with
0: all the strength that, that you need. Yeah, I really like that. We talked about values earlier in this chat. We touched upon it when it came to motivation. And we've also touched upon it when it came to affirmations. It's it's obviously something that is vital for us to understand how to actually function in the world, because then we can actually feel as though we are in alignment with who we believe we are, which then allows us to have a sense of purpose. Yeah, absolutely. That's fabulous. I think it's actually caused me to reflect on the, uh, the um, affirmations that you were sharing earlier, With the idea that if you have a low self-esteem, it may actually do harm. Do you think that perhaps if somebody was feeling doubt about themselves and their abilities, and they needed to improve on their kind of sort of self-talk, could they then just focus on their top three values in that moment to help them through as a type of affirmation? Or do you think that, you know, or, or would that not be helpful. Yes, I think absolutely.
1: When you're in struggle, I think sometimes the most useful thing to do is narrow your focus. Overwhelm comes from thinking, I can't cope with everything that, that I have to do here or everything I want to be. And so when we, rather than looking out at the horizon, sort of look at, okay, what's the next step in front of me? What's that next foot forward? Then it helps to simplify things. So yeah, you can pick... You know, you might have lots of different values that, if you wrote them down, would fill a page. But you might pick, okay, well, I've been struggling with a bit of you know energy recently. Actually, my my value for today is going to be enthusiasm. Whatever I face during the day, I want to come at it with enthusiasm. And that could be it. And then kind of experimenting with and maybe journaling about it at the end of the day, like, what what was that like to focus on being enthusiastic? You know, when I'm talking to my children or my partner or at work in that meeting, did it change things for me? Did I feel different? Did anyone else respond differently to me? You know, you can sort of play around with those sorts of things as
0: well. So yeah, absolutely. I think I might do that, you know. (laughs) It's interesting because I've thought about values myself and it's one of the things that I do each morning. I wake up and I remember my top three values that I, to be honest, it's always the same. Maybe I should put more thought into it, but (laughs) um, for me, it's, it's, it's love, gratitude, and focus. Those are the three things I say to myself every morning as I wake up. And I find that really helps me to Act in ways that I hope will, will reflect that in my in my day to day life. That's fascinating, isn't it? So you sort of
1: spend a few moments with it in the morning, yeah, and then it imp- impacts on the choices you make
0: through the day. I believe it does. I do. I do believe it makes a difference. But yeah, I mean, sometimes when I've talked about values with people in the past, they've struggled to think. Well, what does it mean? What are values? Like, you know, yeah. Uh, and it was nice that you gave an example of you know if if. If I want to focus on the enthusiasm, that's my value of the day. Do you do you have any other examples of values that you have found particularly useful? Yes. Yeah,
1: so um when I sort of talk to people about values in therapy, I often talk about the, the difference between a goal and a value. So we are really used to setting goals, aren't we? And and a goal is something that is finite. So a goal might be the marathon. And once you get there and you finish it, it's done. But a value never has to end. So a value is, is like a, a path that lasts your whole life. And it's a path that you never complete, but you always want to stay close to it. So again, we don't want to be perfectionist about it. Life can steer us in a different direction at times and can pull us away from some of those values. So that awareness and doing those values check-ins that are in the book is really about every now and then just kind of sticking your head up and going, oh, am I still close to those paths that I want to be close to? And if not, if life has pulled me away from something that, that I want to be staying close to, then I need to redirect and go back towards it. So yeah, you know, a value can be something like enthusiasm or love or could be something about sort of the type of parent you want to be or the the type of friend you want to be. You know, you can really split it in the book. I kind of split it into different areas. So you might have an area of friendship or intimate relationships or family or lifelong learning or career. And then in each of those sections, you can think about what kind of person do I want to be in this area of my life? So you can go on and on, you know, it can be huge because life is layered and complex but you don't have to deal with them all at the same time. Often you'll find that you'll be really kind of doing well at one or two where you're kind of really living in line with that value, but maybe there's a cost somewhere else that, you know, maybe you're really, really focused on your career right now and it's brilliant and you're you're doing everything you want to do on that front, but maybe you're neglecting your health, for example. And so sometimes it's just about, you can't do them all perfectly. Sometimes it's about just redirecting so that you can be more balanced or in a way that that you feel happy with.
0: Mm. Yeah, that does make sense. Thank you. Lovely. So I think we've covered quite a lot of ground actually in this chat. We've talked about... The main pillars of psychological wellness, we've talked about nutrition, movement, sleep and values. You've obviously laid out a lot of those things in the book, all the different areas of our mental health, mood, anxiety. Could you leave our listeners with one more top tip that they can take away for this day and, uh, and remember that would hopefully enhance their, their mental health? Uh,
1: I say, if, if, I guess for for simplicity and maximum impact, I would say if you do nothing else today, get outside to a green space and move your body in whatever way you feel that you can or would like to. If you can add joy into that mix and do something that is fun for you, you're much more likely to repeat it again tomorrow or the next day, you know. But honestly, getting outside and moving your body has a short-term impact but if you start to repeat it over time it also has a long-term impact and it's just really really powerful in terms of setting you up to make better choices through the day and all those sorts of things so yeah, move as much as you can and out in nature as much as you possibly can, if that's accessible to you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Julie. What a fabulous tip to end with. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's been my pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed our chat. And I know that our listeners were going to get an awful lot out of that. So I really appreciate it. And if anyone didn't quite catch the name of Dr. Julie Smith's book, it is going to be called Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? <laughs> um, when does the book come out, Julie? So the book is out now. The book is out on the 6th of January. So it's available
1: in all sorts of stores, you know, Waterstones, WH Smiths and uh, Tesco, but you can get it online as well. There's lots of links on my Instagram to go to Amazon and Waterstones. So yeah,
0: really appreciate your time telling everybody all about the book today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I actually got a lot out of that personally and I think that we covered a huge amount of topics. Uh, Join me again though for our next episode where we'll be talking to another great guest about how to fit wellness into your day. And remember that you can find all previous episodes of the Wellness Edit on your favourite podcast platform or via the Holland and Barrett website which is www.hollandandbarrett.com.